Welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord. I'm Evan Ball. Today we have Tim McElrath and Zach Blair of Rise Against on the podcast. We have a wide-ranging conversation, including a great discussion on record labels. Rise Against have been on independent labels and major labels over the past two decades. In that time span, their band grew massively, and of course, the record industry saw drastic evolution. So they definitely have some perspective and authority on this topic. Other topics include following your passion, being political, sheltering in place in the age of COVID-19, Zach's tenure in the band Guar, and more. All right, there are a few rough spots for the audio. Internet connections fluctuate, but this is the era of remote communications. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Tim and Zach of Rise Against. Tim McElrath and Zach Blair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. So how are you guys passing your time lately? I'm staying really positive. I mean, I'm a positive guy. I see glasses half full. Um, I think everybody, I'm sort of impressed with everyone's uh, resilience and adherence to sort of community and paying attention to things and taking things, you know, in stride. I, I don't know, man. I think we're getting ahead of this thing. The numbers are showing good now. So I'm using it as, I, to quote my, my buddy here, Tim McElrath, as a collective sort of pause and a sigh and uh, a regrouping of sorts and trying to learn from it and take uh, some positive things away from it. With my days, I'm playing a lot of guitar like I always do and writing music and trying to exercise as much as I can. But uh, I've, I've, I've kind of been, uh, I've developed my own little daily rituals. How about you, Tim? Yeah. For me, it's been a lot of, um, like we weren't, we weren't supposed to be on the road at this time anyway. And so there was minimal disruption to the Rise Against World. Like we finished our, our whole touring campaign for Wolves a while back. And so really we've just been in the writing mode. And so for musicians that are in the, the writing phase of their uh, cycles, is, is probably a pretty normal thing. Um, so we've been lucky that, there was, that we didn't have the, the mass disruption that a lot of friends of ours and peers of ours had with their crews and touring, the trucks you rent, you know, the shows that you now have to postpone and reset up, people that have records coming out, you know, and all the momentum that goes into um, putting a record out. That That can be, like, really frustrating. And so in a lot of ways, we've sort of dodged a lot of bullets in that sense. And like, I think this whole thing, it's definitely, I've heard people kind of call it like the great equalizer because it's hitting everybody all at once. But, but honestly, it's, it's hitting some people in the world a lot harder than it's hitting other people. And that's something that I'm trying to be aware of and recognize that some people don't have the option to stay home. Some people are on the front lines. And now the front lines, instead of being what we typically think of as front lines, the front lines are grocery stores. You know, the front lines are our emergency personnel, that kind of thing. And so those are people that are really putting themselves at risk to keep the, uh, the wheels churning, you know, because the world will keep turning if an advertising executive does not go to work for the next six months. You know what I mean? Right. But someone's got to pick up your garbage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that's it, the, the, like it sort of redefines what 
essential really is. Yeah, it is. It is really a time where you you take stock of everything and uh, kind of reassess. Um, And just for for our future listeners, we're recording this on April 9th, 2020. So we've been living the the stay at the stay at home life for almost a month now. And uh, who, who really knows how close we are to the end of the tunnel. So do you guys do you guys write remotely anyway? In the past, yeah, because we're kind of, I guess, I guess so everybody knows our whole deal. It's, there's t- Joe and I are in Chicago. Uh, Zach is in Austin, Texas, and that's where we both are presently. And then um, Brandon um, lives outside of Denver, Colorado. And so for the majority of this band's existence at this point, we've done stuff remotely, and we've kind of figured that whole thing out. And I think we've done a pretty good job at it. Yeah, it's kind of good to have your corner to go to, you know, because we're one of those bands that we never really stop touring the way a younger band tours. We've always managed to keep a very steady touring uh, touring schedule. And so with that having been said, it's like it's also nice to have your little corner of the world to go to and just. Sort of- yeah. All right. Let's get a little history. Did you guys grow up with music in your homes? I guess like. The broad answer is no for me. There was certainly music, but my parents were not musical. I took like the piano lessons that you're supposed to take as a young person. And then my parents, not really, they have record collections. They had three records. They had Kenny Rogers, Don McLean, it's American Pie, and then uh, Bill Cosby himself. <laughs> and that's like, if, if we went on road trips, we listened to those three records, like like back to back to back to back to back. So I could sing the words to any of those songs. Right. Um, but it really wasn't a, like getting into music was really like my own independent journey. Like as I, as I became more, I guess, more an adolescent, I got into what was on the radio and the punk scene and metal and my sisters, I had two older sisters who were way into like hair metal. And so I'll, when I started hearing stuff like Guns Roses and that kind of thing, that was a little bit on the heavier side of it. It was like, oh, this, this is kind of interesting. And then when I finally heard a band like Minor Threat, I was like, well, this is fucking dangerous. Like, this is incredible. And then, and that's where it kind of went for me. How did you come across Minor Threat? Was that from from friends? Yeah, it was like, it's kind of, everyone has that story of like the older kid in your neighborhood, the mixtape, that whole thing. That was what it was. It was like between like, I remember I went away to camp and there was an older, cooler counselor who had like, you know, Doc Martens and he was way into punk. And I had heard a little bit of some punk bands. And so I knew a little bit. And so when he found out that I knew a little bit, he was like, well, now you need to find, you need to discover all these bands. And he gave me a mixtape with like Social Distortion, Screeching Weasel, Fugazi, um, Naked Ray Gun, Minor Threat, Descendants, um, and Subhumans, I think. And so, you know, and I'm sure a lot of guys our age have the same stories, but that was all you had. Like when I walked away with that, I couldn't go research it on the internet. You know what I mean? Like you couldn't, Right. I didn't see a picture of what these bands looked like, you know, and I was at that point, I was like 12 or 13. So it wasn't like I was hanging out like in the city and like going to shows yet, really. And so these mixtapes were really important back then because they were really were your only one, your one and only lifeline to this subculture that was existing, you know, globally. And each thing was a different piece of the puzzle that you cherished. How about you, Zach? I, I had like a, like, Normal kids have a football dad that pushes them into sports. And I had a music dad that pushed me into music. My dad was a radio DJ. So he was like a classic rock all night request hour guy. 
And my dad had a show my entire life from, he went to work, his show started at 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. And he worked, you know, until the morning. So my dad always slept during the days. And that he just, his show was his life. But it was a lot of like heavier music, like classic rock and acid rock and stuff. So my dad was real into like, you know, Blue Cheer and of course Sabbath and Hendrix and the psychedelic stuff. But also, you know, because I'm from Texas, my dad's favorite band of all time was ZZ Top. I also have a, a brother, uh, Donnie, who, who plays in the band The Toadies. And he was, my brother was early on bass player. And so I had my big brother and my dad just kind of, you know, my dad just gave us guitars and was like, here's what you guys are going to do. And would just ask us if we were practicing and act us, ask us what songs we learned today and stuff like that. Our family was broke because my dad was a DJ. <laughs> my mother was a florist at a grocery store. So the money didn't exactly flow in. But I do remember we would hawk our TV, but we wouldn't hawk the stereo. Yeah. My dad always just had, you know, the record sitting up against the speaker of what was playing. And normally it was ZZ Top's Deguelo and Robin Trower's Bridge of Size back, <laughs> or, or uh, Victims of the Fury, actually. <laughs> And just and and Black Sabbath, this volume four, just either one of those records. Okay. So, to me, there wasn't a choice, and I'm glad I didn't. You know, I I actually did love it. I I I eternally wanted to impress my dad, and and have his approval. But I also really had an affinity for it and a love for it as well. So, it, it never occurred to me to think of anything else to do, which served me later on because I've, I, I had that resilience tested many times, you know, when people you went to high school with are now graduating college and starting families and having kids and having mortgages and you're in your thirties. You're like, you're in a van with a bunch of dudes, but it, you know, thankfully I, we, I stuck to what I wanted to do and, and didn't care about what else happened. I just knew that I wanted to do this. Yeah. You know, you kind of did that rebellious thing a little bit, what Tim was talking about, where you meet the older kids, you meet the kids. I'm from a really small, terrible town in Texas (laughs) where no one was like my brother and I. So we had to start like importing. We had to start to try to meet kids from Dallas and, and sure enough we did. And those kids started telling us about, minor threat and the descendants and we sort of found our own music that wasn't my dad's you know uh we had started already because we had found thrash metal because a gateway drug from all the other things we were listening to that my dad was into was metallica so the metallica was ours and that led us into like really aggressive like over the top black and death metal uh and then that led us to punk because you know you just would see pictures of these bands of whatever t-shirts they were wearing. You're like, oh, I'm going to check that out, you know? Nice. Okay. So you're punk and metal. I'm punk and metal. I'm, yeah. I'm a bit equal. I'm a bit, I think I'm about, I, about 60, 40, I'll say. I was, I was 60% punk, but, and Tim, Tim sent me a song earlier today, just to <laughs> let you know, that I was like, holy fuck, what's this? And how do I not know it? You know, Is, so, Isn't that song so good? <laughs> What was it's it? So, <laughs> so like uh, Henry Rollins is doing this KCRW like four hour stream of music where he just kind of plays a radio DJ. I mean, that's what he is, right? But he, you can just kind of stream it. And so I've been listening to it over and over. And um, Lair of the Minotaur, let's kill all these motherfuckers. Is that, was that what it was, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was <It's>... so brutal. <laughs> 
yeah, I think I think you could say that I'm a fair share share metal, and, and I also did a stint in Guar, and so that definitely fed into my metal thing. After that, I was like, I need to play in a punk rock band again. <laughs> Wait, let, okay, let's let's pause there real quick. So, so it's 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 not a rumor. You were actually Flatus Maximus in the band Guar. I was. It's like my 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 party trick. And I, out, I can say I was in Guar, and then people go, "What the fuck?" Is is there any way to to summarize in a, a nutshell, like the like the mythology of Guar? In a nutshell, Guar are space pirates that uh, this sleazy manager from they they crash landed into America uh, to the, on the Earth in Antarctica. And this manager guy, enterprising guy, went and got them addicted to drugs so they would serve him for the rest of their lives, and he gave them crack cocaine. I mean, it's the silliest <laughs> But then it's it's music theater at its finest. So we, you know, we were setting up and take tearing down a, a theater set every day and, and and performing the same things and knowing your marks and knowing your beats and stuff, led by the genius um, Dave Brocky, rest in peace, this most charismatic gregarious individual i've ever met funniest but it ran its course with me there was also a bunch of uh and this is okay to talk about but some addiction issues that i you know i i don't clutch my pearls at but there was some in that band that were getting in the way of progress i guess we should say and also i joined these guys band you know and i never felt like it was my thing when i joined rise against it was with open arms and i felt like i'd been in the band since day one but I wouldn't trade my Guar years for anything. And as a matter of fact, uh, the guy that replaced me, Corey Smoot, he ended up, he died. And I got to go back and write with them uh, six or seven songs and play on Dave Brocky's last record. Yeah, what a unique experience. And those are some pretty heavy duty costumes. How, how are the live shows? Is it difficult to play? One Guar live show was like one month of a regular show. Yeah. It was 60 pounds of hot rubber on, on your body. And you just, if you got through the show without vomiting, that was a miracle because you vomited it all. It was, it was awful. You play a lot of leads in that too, right? Yeah, I was a lead guitar player and it was, it, you had to learn how to see, I had these cheekbones in my mask. I couldn't see my guitar. So I had to basically practice the whole set without looking which helped me in the long run with other things. But. Totally, yeah, yeah. So you, you've got a, a lesser-known shred side to you, I, I take it. I'm a shredder at heart, I think. Um, you know, I, it's it's like long division. I don't think it really helps you many other places. You know, <laughs> you don't need to know it really, but it's it's fun to have it in your back pocket. Yeah. All right. Is there a worst or best gig ever that comes to mind? A generic answer is that we've we get to do this. And we got people still showing up after 10 year, 20 years that want to see us do this and want to hear what we're doing. So every gig is, I mean, honestly, and that sounds so hackneyed and so sort of played out, but every gig we do, I'm so amazingly blown away. Um, we did play to, it's on film, and I think it's one of the ones that sticks out with me most. We got rained on the entire time. We filmed it for our DVD that we put up. It was Rock and Ring in Germany, which is their version of, say, Coachella. And, you know, the Europeans do festivals right. Yeah, yeah. And was, how many people were there, Tim? And they say like 80,000. Woo! 80,000. 80, it was so large that you saw this city of people. And then behind them was a, just a video wall. So let's say 40,000 people 
we were playing to, and then 40,000 more were just watching video walls of what oh, we were doing wow. because we are this big, you know, we're, we're like the size of, of a Lego minifig or whatever. And it rained on us the entire time. And I remember thinking like, we're going to get electrocuted, but this is going to be a great way to die. <laughs> uh, and so for, I always remember that show. Worst, I've had many, many worsts. Um, Guar had a lot of bad ones because just of the logistics of Guar. And that's a whole other podcast. Uh, falling down in the suit and turtle backing where you can't get up and somebody has to come get you. And that's the worst. Falling on stage, uh, uh. period. But we did do one. And I want to say there was two different shows that were on the same tour. One was in Warsaw, Poland. And one was in um, Prague, Czech Republic, that were so hot. I oh, remember yeah. I remember we, we were only inhaling sweat. You're only inhaling yeah. everyone's perspiring wetness yeah. so you weren't you weren't breathing and i remember tim who tim mackleth has never done this in his life take his shirt off on stage and then <laughs> kicked his shoes off on stage and then you were just playing one chord walking around stunned about yeah. to pass out and we all were yeah i was i remember thinking we i looked at our cellist we had like five songs left i was like there's no Fucking these songs, and I think we did cut it. Did we cut it early? I think we definitely cut some songs. I I, I remember. I remember the heat hitting me in this way that I was getting disoriented and no longer thinking straight. Oh no, you weren't. And and like you said, like at some point in my head, I decided, and this was crazy because I was not thinking straight anymore. I was like thinking, you know what? If I just take my shoes off everything will be better. <laughs> just, I just need to get these shoes off. And yeah. you gotta, you gotta imagine too, like you're talking to two guys. We don't smoke weed. We don't do drugs. Either one of us drink. You know what I mean? So like while this moment, maybe something people are familiar with when they party really hard, like this was like just two cold, sober, <laughs> like people. Yeah. And for me, just like, and I just was no longer like, I, I was losing my mind, you know? Oh, it was and the I, worst. It was one of those hot, hot. If you ever see a picture of me or any of us playing with like a black towel around our necks, yeah, it's because we're playing a really fucking hot show, and that our bass tech Mike Fry, God bless Mike Fry, yeah, he'll see when we start to lose it. He'll dip these towels in like ice water, and he'll come out and sneak up behind you and put it around your neck, and it'll give you another ten minutes of life. You know, like, it's great. Okay, I can it's do great. this. You know, but if you yeah, ever see yeah. a picture of us playing that, know that. Know that he is looking at us and going, oh, shit, they're about to die. Someone give me a towel. <laughs> they're about to go down. It's yeah. like, I, I just remember those two shows. Uh, Warsaw was yeah. kind of like a basement, I remember. It was it was a downstairs, and the walls were sweating, and the, the ceiling was dripping. And I remember that. I was just getting drips on my forehead. It was that bad. It's um, especially so, graphic in the age of COVID-19. It's oh, true. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, it was the worst. It was the worst. But uh, we made it through. And, you know, you kind of also romanticize it because you remember, like, the pictures of all your favorite punk bands doing the same thing. You're like, yeah, we did it. So, Tim, no no accidents ever from swinging a mic cable around? Oh, have I hit anybody, Zach? Ever? I don't think I've hit anybody. Uh, you, you know what's really amazing is that you have come within a half an inch oh, of God. hitting my head so many fucking times. And <laughs> that never hurts done it. so, that hurts so bad. Pushing it. Tim and I have definitely ran into each other 
many yeah. times. We've never knocked each other down, but we've definitely like, and it's usually our backs. We, we hit backs yeah, and then yeah. we kind of bounce off of each other. Like, Oh shit. You know? Yeah. Um, and I've fallen so many times. So many. Yeah. Times. I, I've fallen too. I used oh, to yeah. fall a lot, you know? And then so you, you fall and there's just no good way. You just kind of like, you got to laugh it off with the crowd. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I see and, just it, have, and just have fun with it, you know. Yeah. But no, I, I haven't. I don't think I've hurt anybody. That would hurt so bad too <laughs> if you, if that happened. <laughs> that would hurt so bad. Uh, you know, I remember I came down. Remember in Manchester, I came down with my headstock, and I yeah. I just took a chunk out of my own mm. head, and they had to rush the paramedics out. Uh, after the show, because I it was my head and it wouldn't stop bleeding. Wait, your own headstock hit your yeah, my own headstock on body, my own your head, head, your head, yeah, yeah, because I was like swinging my guitar down and just oh, I see. And I didn't need stitches, but um, it definitely looked pretty dramatic because there was a you know <laughs> yeah. ambulance out in front of the venue as the kids are leaving and everything, and uh, it looked cool. All right, Tim, how did Rise Against? How was it born? I guess it was like twenty years ago now late nineties, Chicago punk and hardcore world. Joe's previous band, uh, which was called 88 Fingers Louie, had disintegrated. I was at a kind of a crossroads as well. And he approached me and he was like, I want to do a project. You know, this is kind of what I have some songs written. And he gave me a cassette of the songs. I heard it a few times and then went and just sang whatever's off the top of my head over the songs. Right away we could tell like okay, this, this could be a cool thing. And then we sort of assembled the band over the next like year or so um, in Chicago. And, um, and things happened rather quickly um, after we finally got like a lineup together. We were signed to Fat Records um, out of San Francisco before we even played our first show. And that was due to a number of reasons, I mean, mostly because we couldn't get a lineup together to like play a first show. We were ready. Like Joe was ready. I was ready. You know, we were, we wanted to, but like we, we had auditioned like 17 drummers or something like that to try to find before we found Brandon. And so that's, that's kind of where the band started like our origins. And then we snowballed from there. And even though we've actually known Zach since literally like our first tour, um, he ended up joining the band years later. We crossed paths with him many times over the first like like the first few records of the band and then we yeah. finally when it came up and we needed somebody he was the first guy we thought of you know when he joined the band and yeah. we didn't like that and it wasn't like we held auditions it was kind of like everybody was like hey what about zach and was like yeah and that yeah. was it <laughs> <laughs> so. i remember back then i had been in a band that had put out a, a few records on fat Oh, actually, I've been in two different bands that have been on Fat Records. So it was all this family, and they would always send you their their current releases, their records, and their things. And I just remember um, getting the first Rise Against record and hearing his voice, and just thinking, you know, nothing disparaging the the current the, the current state at the time of punk rock music, but I wasn't hearing much that was like really different or blowing me away or doing their own thing and his fucking voice. I remember playing it for all my friends. I go, did you hear this fucking kid on that? <laughs> like who the fuck is this guy? You know? And, uh, I still think that to this day, actually. Um, that's great. And yeah, it's always, it's never ceases to amaze me. My brother and I were just talking about Tim's voice today, actually, but 
I knew even then I was like, man, I would play in this band. I had a band with Bill Stevenson who produces Rise Against Records and always has. Uh, he's kind of like our fifth member, our mentor, our our seer, our sage, yeah, uh, our guru, our guru, <laughs> our guru, and. Uh, He's uh, been my mentor since I was a kid. I punished him when I was 16 because I loved his band. And my he took my band under his wing and started producing our records in the 90s and all that shit. But our band was called Only Crime and, and the guys, Rice, took us out. And that's where we really, really bonded. And uh, man, it was maybe two years after that tour. They just called me, cold called me, you know. I was working construction and these guys called me on the phone and were like, Hey dude, you want to be in our band? I was like at Home Depot. I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You want me there tomorrow? Yeah. How about tonight, motherfucker? Tim, backing up, you were did you leave college for Rise Against? Yeah. I was like I was go I would have been going into my senior year. I was an English major and a sociology minor. And I was a pretty half-assed student. I wasn't on like this like full scholarship grind with a job waiting for me the other end, you know? Yeah. Well, you're still um, playing in bands the whole time too, right? Still playing in bands. Yeah. I mean, college was really just a way for me to leave town, live in a punk house, uh, have my parents vaguely support me while I went to shows every single night in downtown Chicago. You know, I kind of yeah. lived at a place called Fireside Bowl and I played music just all the time we had we had like a we built like a, a shitty practice space in the basement of this punk house and i just played music and wrote songs with friends and jumped from band to band and i was a bass player in a band and i was the singer of some bands and i was the guitar player in some bands and and really i was just going to shows i was just i don't i didn't i didn't need anybody to go with i didn't care who was playing i was just i was just like a kid that would just show up with five bucks and be like I'm here. I don't care who's playing. I just want to see music. And that's kind of, I remember doing that and loving living in downtown Chicago because there was so many shows, there were so many shows that were happening and it wasn't ever in like a careerist kind of way. It was just an impulse. I just, it's what I wanted to do. It's where I wanted to be. I never, I never truly never really saw myself in a million years still doing this, this many years later. I saw, I put bands on pedestals, you know, I put professional musicians on pedestals. I thought that was something that, other people did, but I love doing it. So yeah, I never went back to school. Um, but I'm glad that I, I had the years that I did. So, so I you did must go. have, you must have felt it was promising enough, right. To, to pull you away. I knew that like, no matter what, there was enough momentum behind what we were doing that we were at least going to get to the first rung of the ladder. You yeah. know? And I knew that where at that point we had a deal with fat records, which was, a really big deal in like the late nineties, early 2000s, totally. you know, yeah. it was like people, you know, subscribe to fat records, you know, like having a record on fat, almost guaranteed you were going to sell 10,000 copies and tour the world. You know what I mean? And so I saw it as a great opportunity. I was aware enough to know this is a cool thing. You know, maybe we'll get a record out of it. Maybe I'll get to tour. You know, I never really, I hadn't really traveled that much before then. Um, it was almost felt like you were winning a contest. You know what I mean? Like it felt like you were getting chosen to go do this. Um, but just like a contest is a one-time thing. That's what it felt like. It didn't feel like you would still be doing it. It didn't feel like you, you, you didn't have the delusions of grandeur to think like maybe there'll be a second record. Maybe there'll be another tour. 
Yeah. Like maybe I'll, maybe I'll still be doing this a couple years from now, but it did, it had enough momentum where we were going to go into a real studio. We we're going to put out a full length and we we're going to play shows and school was going to be very much interrupted by all of that. And so I convinced my parents, my parents had pretty much given up on me at that point though. So there wasn't a lot of convincing. <laughs> they were like, yeah. <laughs> they, they, had, they had stopped fighting my impulses of a long time, yeah. but I told them, I'm not, I'm not going to go to school. I'm going to go to a studio. I'm going to record a full length. And I'm going to go on tour. When this all falls apart a year later, uh, there's always college. And I can always go back. Sure. Well, and you guys must've had been well connected with fat records from previous bands, 88 fingers, Louie and other connections. Yeah, that was huge. That yeah. was like, I mean, that was the reason we got our first start. You know, everything else was up to us. You know what I mean? From that, from that, after that opportunity, but from Joe having a history with Idiot Fingers Louie, who had toured internationally at that point, you know, so his connections were vital to us getting off the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Fat Records era I knew best was right before you guys signed with them. So I'm sure there's some some overlap there, but it was mm -hmm. strung out, lag wagon, no use for a name. Mad Caddies. So the band I, I was playing in forever stopped playing. So I kind of I kind of lost touch and shifted my energy into college finally. But I remember this this was a time where some emo bands started showing up on Warp Tour, like 2001-ish. So when you're up and running with Fat, this era is kind of a blind spot for me. So I'm curious, what is the state of Fat Records at this time? Are, are tastes changing? Is it pretty mixed? I want to say, yeah, it, it seemed like the 90s um, were the big boom of, of those bands you just mentioned. Yeah. Fat Rec, I remember Europe, like like festivals in Europe that not even a Fat Rec band was playing had Fat Rec merchandise. It was such a yeah. phenomenon. It was such a culture, you know, and all of this right. was just happening with Fat Mike. And it was an independent label. And these bands are getting such, just creating such a thing that... Of course, it wasn't completely sustainable. And then going into, I think, Wise Against Era, Fat, the early aughts to mid aughts to the emo generation and all that stuff with the Warp Tour, I think bands, Fat, smartly started sort of looking into other sounds. Fat, uh, Rise Against did not sound like a fat wreck band to me. Right. You know, that first record was, it sounded more like sick of it all and, and, and good sort of East Coast style hardcore mixed with Dag Nasty, mixed with Tim's voice coming out of nowhere. Like no one had heard a guy sing like that with this type of band. So along with them, they, they signed, uh, what were more bands that kind of got signed? Around that time, there was a shift, like you said, and there was a shift in sound. And it was, they went from the, the, the no use for a name, lag wagon, no effects, strung out world, to all of a sudden they signed Avail. You know, Avail was like gutter punk, you know, Richmond, Virginia, punk rock. That was a huge sign. They yeah. signed Sick of It All, New York City Hardcore. That was a big shift for them. They signed Anti-Flag, which at the time was kind of like out there. They started to sign bands like Against Me and Lawrence Arms. They were putting out like some really cool bands like Dead to Me. Um, it's a broader net. Yeah, so there was, there was a shift in what Fat was doing. Um, and it was stuff that like, it maybe didn't have that same fat sound, but it has something in common with like the fat sound. So yeah. it felt like we were part of this new era of fat records. That was cool. And it was important. And it was like, when you signed a fat, you also signed to a family, you know, yeah. because 
not only did Fat Mike give us our shot and put our record out, but then that was our first five years was opening for Strung Out um, for a long time, opening for the Mad Caddies across around the world, opening for Sick of It All on our first European tour, opening for No Effects on our first Western Canadian tour. Um, those were all directly related to the fact that we were on the Fat Family. Those are tours that I don't think we would have been on had we not been part of that Fat Family. It not only was it huge for us and our huge introduction to so many fans around the world, but it also taught us that this is how you do it. Like you give back, you know, yeah. like we were, we were nobody when sick of it all took us to Europe, but they did it. Cause it was like part of like this family, you know, we were nobody when no effects took us to play for massive crowds in Western Canada, but they, but they did it cause they kind of, they were giving back. And so it really, taught us like you got to give back you got to take these bands out uh, you got to give them a chance because that's why we're here because somebody gave us a chance yeah it was, it's almost like here is the keys to the kingdom all you got to do is just go and do likewise you know you you had these sort of people showing you what they did how they did it and taking you out with them to do it with them <laughs> and to give you on the job training so to speak um yeah, the, the weight of what he did for bands of our generation can't be understated. I don't think him and mm. and and and, Ger- and Brett Gerowitz at Epitaph. Yeah, those two labels just broke the mold on how we all sort of had careers from the '90s to the aughts to now. It's 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 unbelievable what those guys did for us. Yeah, mm. this is kind of a general question. the The business has changed a lot since you guys got signed. What's the biggest perk of having a label today? You know, this is this like you touch on something really interesting and something I think that is heavily debated in the music world is the idea of putting out your own record, you know, going DIY, taking things away from like a bigger uh, structural framework of a label and kind of like selling music through your own website, that kind of thing. And I think that there's a lot of validity to that. A big label can be dead weight for a lot of bands, a lot of people, depending on who you are. Um, we are a band that I can only speak to our career. We're like a global band. If you, if you had to take what rise against does and put it in numbers, most of those numbers would fall into fall outside of the border of America. Okay. And so what we do, it not only is it global, but we have to look at it as a global thing, not just, not even just an American thing or even a North American thing. And so you have to treat it as a global thing and know that a label is the kind of thing you're going to need. If you're going to want help in Germany, Austria, Sweden, Australia, Japan, Canada, Brazil, South Africa, all at the same time, you know? And so we've always had a lot of success with um, that sort of world where there's boots on the ground around uh, the entire planet to help support what you do, which is great because we make songs. And we want people to hear them and there's no point to making them if they don't hear them, you know? And so we've gone from an indie label, obviously fat records, our first two records. And then we signed a five record deal well with DreamWorks, but it turned into a five record deal with like basically universal music group. We did all five of those records over the course of about 10 or 11 years and then became a free agent. And then we signed a Virgin records for our last record. And now we're with a label called Loma Vista, which is part of Concord. 
so we're we've been we've been around the block and we've seen these things kind of take place but the label has always been really important to a band like us because there's some smart people um and also as you know like the industry has been changing it's a constantly moving target you know so when you're a band like us who's been putting out records since the year 2001 the climate in which we put out a record each record was different when we put out the first two records like social media wasn't really a thing you know when we put out the third record itunes was brand new now it's kind of gone you know and so this thing is every time we would put out a record it would be like a different world it would just be oh you have to do an exclusive song or give an exclusive song to uh tower records and the next record well now tower records is no longer no longer exists yeah (laughs) you know now you need an exclusive song for like Best Buy or whatever. It's like, oh, actually Best Buy is decreasing shelf space for records every right, single right. day. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so there's the, the whole business side of it is something that I think that the right people and somebody smart can kind of help you uh, keep, keep up with it. If you find, if you find the right partner. Yeah. And I think, I think that says a lot. I think the right partner labels nowadays, I've noticed, especially with like say Loma Vista that, that we're working with now, um, they, they, they're approaching it. They have younger people that work for them. So they're, they know that say TikTok is a way that people are getting, hearing music now or whatever it might be. Things that we're not keep, we're in a bus touring and playing shows. Like we're not figuring all these things out as they're happening. Cause like Tim said, it's just constantly evolving and shifting and changing. So you have these younger people in your family and your spectrum that are like Tim says, boots on the ground that are working with you, that you feel um, have stake in the game just like you do. And they're going, oh, actually, we need to be doing these sorts of things now. They get involved with the band. It's not so much um, we're going to work this record now because what is a record nowadays? Yeah. You know, there's not this unit, this thing that we used to make that goes out as sort of a widget that people are buying and consuming. They're consuming your band. And so now maybe you have 8 to 10 or to 12 new songs at any given moment. But those eight to ten to twelve new songs are basically just a flyer for oh and and this is Rise Against and this and they're going to be doing this and this and this and this and that label now is your partner that are telling you all the different varied ways that you can be working on your career you know yeah so that was that that's an impressive thing seeing how they've sort of morphed uh, the the sort of modern label because uh, they have to stay in business as well and if you show up at work one day and it's like, oh, by the way, that thing we've been selling this whole time, that thing is free now. Okay, so scramble. Right. Now, how are we going to be able to keep these doors open? And I think they've done it to a really great, great degree. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's illuminating because I hear a lot of the other side, like you know, that their labels are obsolete or whatever, but that's that makes a lot of sense. It's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing either. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. We grew up in a punk world where and when you grow up in a punk and hardcore world, it's like the major label is always evil, right? The major label <laughs> destroyed your favorite band, you know, <laughs> broke your heart. There's no scenario where it's, it could be a good thing. And like, that was something that I know I was indoctrinated with, you know, I read the Steve Albini columns about what major labels are, you know, and it scared the shit out of me. And I think that it's even possible to be like, it's case by case almost. There could be a band having that experience with the same label you're on while you're having a great experience, you know? Right. I will say, like, Rise Against, like, I'll speak to, like, say, our five-record deal with Universal. 
we signed a five record deal with Universal Records in 2004. We wrote and recorded all five of those records without ever submitting a demo first, without them ever hearing what they're going to get before they got it, without ever changing anything and kind of making it clear to them that we will not entertain any request to change anything either. So they never really did. <laughs> any any yeah. of their suggestions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We just stopped them. We're just like, just so you know, yeah. we're, we're going to say no to whatever you say. So don't even say anything. We, nobody ever sent us back to write a single. We never worked with a co-writer on any of those records or any record period. We did all of that independent of any sort of intervention. We delivered five records. Three of them went gold. All of them were a success and nobody fucked with us. Not necessarily the, the boogeyman you might've heard of. Well, not only that, but like when we, we signed in 2003 and then we left and say like 2013 or 14, we were, we had been there longer than anybody in the office at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it wasn't even the same people. The president had changed three times, you know, wow. like Jimmy Ivey was now working for beats when we, when we left, you know? And so it was like, we just were, we were allowed to do our own thing. We never took tour support from, from, a, from a label. It was really, we, we found this dream scenario that worked out really well for us. And I'm not saying that every band that label had a good experience, but I know that like, I heard horror stories from independent labels, you know? Sure. Like just because the word independent precedes your label doesn't mean that you're a, a good label doing good things, you know? Right. And I think what also, also made me a believer in that whole system too, was that when Rise Against did our major label debut, which was Siren Song of the Counterculture, the two singles that propelled that record and kind of therefore like our introduction to a bigger world were two previously released songs that were comp tracks from punk rock comps that had come out already. The, um, the two songs were Swing Life Away and Give It All, but they were two old songs. There were songs that Fearless Records had put out on a Punk Goes Acoustic comp and Fat Records had put out on the Rock Against Bush compilation. And so we got to see in real time what these songs look like just kind of put out to the world or what these songs could do if you have like this giant machine working behind them. Globally. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah there was, there, they were old. Experiment. Totally. They were old songs. There were songs people had already heard. But when you gave them to these people at the label, it was like let's do something with this. After that, I was, I was a believer, you know, cause I, I was like, thank you for shining a light on these songs that we love and that we wrote. We want people to hear. And, and they did that. This is, this is something I've wondered about, Tim. I know you write plenty of lyrics that are not political, but right. some are. So yeah. you become known for taking certain positions. When you introduce politics into a band, I would think everyone in the band's politics must be aligned and to some degree. Is this, is this ever an issue? You know, um, no, it hasn't been. And I guess like, I never thought about it. And when we first started the band, you know, especially as like a lyricist, you're just being asked to write something that you are passionate about. Right. You're just being asked to like put your heart uh, on the paper and that's all I did. And I think I sort of, in like a really like probably self-absorbed kind of way, I just assumed everybody agreed with me. 
You know what I mean? I didn't think, I didn't think about their feelings in the whole matter. I just thought, this is my job. I, this is what I'm here to do is to write this. We would go, I think what we would go on to find out is like, we were on the same page for the most part. You know, there are like, we're definitely four individual people um, with different opinions on things. But for the most part, like, there's nothing that I've written that I think rubs anybody the wrong way. You know, I think we, we have different passions to different degrees. It's something that that's been very convenient, I think, for for this band, and it, and it was never a prerequisite to everybody agree with each other either. It was never like like even when Zach joined the band, you know, it wasn't like we grilled him about his politics. It was just like we just like Zach, you know. Right, right. But I guess it a, probably like Ted Nugent's not going to apply for the job. Well, yeah, and I think that that was I think that was the thing too. It's like when when you come out of a punk and hardcore world the stances that we took were not radical. We were just like everybody else, True. you know, yeah, yeah. we didn't, we, we didn't stand out. It wasn't until we were in this mainstream world where all of a sudden, you know, journalists were like, Oh, you talk about politics. And you were like, wait, are there bands out there that don't talk about politics? You know, like that was a new idea, but it was like, Oh, we're the black sheep in this. It was only getting exposed to like a, a, a wider audience that we realized the things that made us, a little different. Yeah, it was was a culture shock, but it was something I was really proud of. You know, I think what the most important things, as far as like, at least politically looks, which let's face it, especially nowadays, that's the first thing you think about when you wake up. The first thing you see is something that's either going to piss you off or, or, or make you happy. But, you know, a big misconception about our band, speaking of that as well, was just the way we lived our lives. It's like, oh, I heard everyone in Rise Against is vegan and straight edge. And it's like, nope. (laughs) <laughs> not everyone in rise against is vegan and straight edge, you know, yeah. uh, that that was this misconception that there was this preconceived thing that you had to be both of those things to be in this band. And it's, it's ludicrous. You know, it's, uh, the most important thing is we naturally sort of all do agree on the, the, how we all live our lives and how the, you know, the most important things I've trusted Tim to, with all of his lyrics to basically eloquently say what I've always felt or thought naturally and do it at a much greater degree than I ever could have with my stupid Luddite Cro-Magnum brain. And that's what's been most important to me. Do you know what I mean? And to the point where he says something and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, if, if we did get sort of shunned at whatever music event we were at because we said something that pissed everybody off, at least us four on stage, everybody else could be pissed. But yeah. all four of us walked off going, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't ever want to get fucking ass back. You know? Zach also does a really good, like, every once in a while he'll do a good impression of the day that Tim goes batshit crazy and says stuff on stage and how everybody would react. <laughs> that's the, That's an inside backstage joke of like, what if Tim just went out there and said this? <laughs> just playing with where's the line where you just lose everyone. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy totally. Tim has gone in some uncharted territory. All right. Here's some random questions. What kind of books, podcasts, or shows do you consume? I, I like to like, I, I like to have my pendulum swing back and forth from like heavy news stuff I love the live hosts like Bill Maher and like Rachel Maddow and stuff like that. And then I love listening to something really like analyzing like a TV series, like the Ozarks. You know what I mean? Okay. I, I, I like, it's almost like a palate cleanser. You get like right, getting right. get something heavy. And now I just want to listen to like Dave Chappelle, you know, 
Yeah, it's probably healthy. You know, I have to make myself listen to music sometimes because I, I, yeah, I'm always on podcasts. Like, wait, I gotta just drive and listen to music. Yeah, you gotta turn your brain off. I don't sometimes. need to always be taking in info. Yeah, because if because there's there is a point of saturation where you're just gonna take in too much, and yes, you're listening, but are you absorbing any of it? Yeah. And happiness, you know, there's, there's something. Right. And exactly. That's the thing too. Like we're in a band called rise against, you know what I mean? Like we have to find the joy in things. We do find the joy in things. Like we're, I think we're four pretty happy dudes. You know, like if you were on our bus, it's mostly just dudes joking around, not dudes talking about global politics, you know? Um, But you got, you have to find a way you can engage, but also enjoy art and entertainment for art and entertainment's sake. My wife and I started Tiger King last night. Have you done it? You know what? I have not, but I read this story last year. Oh, that's I right. Remember, I remember reading it being like, what? How does the whole world not know about this thing? <laughs> Just wait. Well, Evan, just to give you a hint of where I'm from, I'm from an hour and a half away from where Tiger King took place. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Winwood, Oklahoma, and I'm from Sherman, Texas, which Sherman is at the northernmost tip of, of Texas at the Oklahoma border. So that's the people I'm from. Right. Uh, anyway, so we started Tiger King. Um, I've been sitting a precedent with myself that I don't go into my living room to watch TV or to settle down until eight o'clock every night. I know it's silly, but I just create things for myself to do, whether it's taking lessons, singing lessons online, guitar lessons, uh, writing music. But I have been obsessed with that. I've been watching, uh, of course, the, the new Better Call Saul season is amazing. Yeah, um, it is. I don't know if anybody, it's, it's great. Man, I can't quit The Walking Dead. I can't quit it. And I haven't started Tim, the new season. Oh, dude, me and Tim have this thing where it's like we watch it on tour, and it's always just this, there's always a protagonist in every season. It's always someone new and someone more fucked up and all that. I can't stop it, and so I'm doing that. <laughs> but as far as podcasts go, I kind of oscillate between – uh, WTF, the Mark Marin podcast, which is amazing. Uh, I found this new one called The Trap Set, which started with predominantly drummers. But here lately, he's been doing one every day, and he's gone from everyone. It's always musicians, which is great. I find that I tend to keep my stuff pretty music-centric. But it's, you know, guys from the Melvins. It's always guys from really cool bands. I've noticed that. It's either really cool producers or really cool bands. Uh, I've been doing the Dean Delray podcast, which is something I learned from the WTF podcast. And as far as news sources, I pretty much stay into the glued to the NPR. But, you know, lately we've been so inundated with news. It's you have to take a break. I have to end up watching something really silly. I've been watching Shit's Creek lately, which I think is genius. You know, just to goddamn forget what the hell's going on. <laughs> yeah. What's the best decision you've made in your life? I guess the best decision in my life is to not ignore the impulse to follow your passion. And with me, that was music. You know, that was, that's the best decision I ever made in my life. I guess, cause it was something that I look back on it now. It's at the time it seemed kind of almost, it just seemed like this really organic thing that was just happening that I, that I couldn't ignore but even when I look back on it now, cause I have, I have kids also, I have uh, a 15 year old and 11 year old and I look, I look, I'm look, looking at their life and trying to be a parent and trying to help them and figure out what they want to do as much as any parent can actually is capable of doing that. And when I look back on my own life and just like how reckless it was almost to follow this passion of music, it like, 
it scares the shit out of me when I think back to that 19 year old kid, you know? Yeah. It was almost like I followed because I didn't have enough sense to not follow it. But I'm really glad that I did because I think that I'd be sitting here right now with this really, with these suppressed ideas and this, these suppressed compulsions, you know, to play music. And so I'm happy that I'm happy that I followed that. Yeah. What about, but what about advice for people out there who are tempted to leave college as you did to pursue their musical career? Cause the odds aren't in their favor. You're, you're right. I mean, they're not, you know, and not only not in your favor, but like, like Zach and I came from this like punk and metal world where our favorite bands were not necessarily successful. You know what I mean, they weren't like successful, right. huge arena rock, you know, maybe they, maybe they were barely making a living, you know, they were huge fans to us. We didn't think about how they made a living. We just thought like, this is the coolest thing in the world. I was having this conversation with actually my dentist who is like, huh. he's a kid, he's a kid younger than me. But uh, he wanted to be a musician and then his parents or his dad like kind of made him become a dentist. was like, no, you have to become a dentist. And now he is and he's ostensibly, you know, very happy at doing it and that kind of thing. But I'm in a a place now where I, I, you know, I have have a daughter who's 15. So she's only got like a couple more years left, like in my house. She's starting to make decisions about what she wants to do. And the protective instinct in me wants to tell her like, do something safe, <laughs> you know, like do something yeah. um, that will keep a roof over your head. And then I look back and I'm like, how hypocritical of me to even say that, to even think that, you know, <laughs> like do whatever your passion is. What I think, what I do think about now, I think about her a lot and like her life is that for a lot of people I know, the passions they had when they were, in their adolescence is still their passion today. It still in some way ties into what they love to do. Some people discover what they love to do later in life, you know, and that's cool. But for a lot of people, it is what they were, you know, like I, I'm still doing what in this room, what I did when I was 15 years old, you know, which is picking up a guitar and playing on the end of my bed and trying to write songs. That's what I still do as a 41 year old man. My wife is way into like, fitness and running and like exercising that's what she was really into when she was that young you know yeah and so the one the one piece of advice that i like to like give my daughter is don't think about like the future think about like right now what you care about and do that you know um especially in a world where we have so many distractions like i it scares the shit out of me to think about like how powerless we all are over our phones you know how powerless we all are to like social media, uh, connection and communication. Like it scares the shit out of me to think like if you went back in time and put an iPhone in my 13 year old hand, would I have ever picked up a guitar? Right. You know, like why this iPhone will entertain me nonstop, you know, like so many things that I did in my life, I did out of sheer boredom. Yeah. Like kids, aren't bored anymore, you know, not only are they not bored anymore, but like, and I, and I don't even mean to blame kids because and, I, and the, when I have this conversation with my daughter, I'm not trying to blame her. I'm like, I'm like this phone is this really well-designed weapon that I am powerless to, that you are powerless to. Like it takes a lot to put it down. It takes a lot to shut it off and find something different to do. And so it scares the shit out of me when I think 
how many people are not picking up a guitar and guitar is just what I, is like my general like example for how many people are not finding their passions because yeah. technology is so it's so I guess the word is good like it's so well thought out right it's so right. it so has your number people way smarter than all of us are in Silicon Valley right now like figuring us all out and how can you compete with that you can't compete with that you know most of us can't it yeah. makes stories like I read about Steve Lacey, who's a, an upcoming like singer songwriter, uh, soul, hip hop, R and B. He does stuff with Thundercat. He's a kid. He's like nineteen or twenty years old, and he makes his records with a broken iPhone six. He taps out the beats and he plugs his guitar into it with an iRig, and you have to hear this stuff. It's amazing. And it's always really impressive because what you said, Tim, you're absolutely right. I, I believe it's sort of a created creativity vacuum. It's going to take all of that. But for some people like this kid that it's still so strong in him that he's using uh, the benefits of, of this tool to get it out of him. Uh, it's always so impressive when I hear that nowadays because you're right. For me and you, it was like we had no distraction. There was no good excuse for right. not picking something up and just doing it. Right. But, but for now, between me and this, there's a phone. And I'll go, oh, I, I want to, oh, you know. Yeah. And this kid is going, is plugging into this thing and using it and making a song and immediately posting that. Yeah. Well, it's so true. I mean, the tools are there like never before to create content and art and music. But the tools are also there like never before to create distraction and to just watch other people do stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I guess I should ask this. What gauge strings do you guys play? Ooh. Tim? Uh, what gauge do I play, Z? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tim play. For a long time, we've been using regular 10 through 46. Yeah. Um, just straight yeah, up yeah. 10. Just the uh, standard nickel bound slinkies. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have now switched to 11s. Uh, as of late that I want to take into next year. I just, I, it's something about the tone of 11s for me. I have noticed the interesting things you guys have been doing uh, with your 0.5 lines, you know, like your 10.5s. Yeah, yeah. It's something I'm interested in. And your Paradigm series. Is oh, yeah, the Paradigms. Also really cool. All right. Tim and Zach, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thank uh, you. Yeah. yeah, our pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Striking a Chord and Ernie Ball Podcast. Thanks again to Tim and Zach. I really enjoyed the conversation. Such nice guys with lots of experience to draw from. If you'd like to email us, email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. You gave um, one of our like family members, basically, uh, Stefan Edgerton from The Descendants, he got a signature model. Yeah, uh, we just launched it. Oh, we're so, I'm so happy for him. He's yeah. been using Ernie Ball since the guitars. He was using, yeah. he had a, an Axis Sport that you it, guys had custom made him back then, just one. And man, he's been using those guitars for over 20 years. So that was, that was 97. It, my cousin and I did the, it's the first time Ernie Ball got in, involved in the Warp Tour. And oh, wow. so we had a booth there where we had guitars on the, we had an RV and we set up the guitars on the side. So, so he'd come over all the time and, and play. So we made that connection and then, yeah, yeah it was He's, an Axis Super Sport, I think with, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah, no yeah. knobs and or, no one knobs, gray yeah. and no knobs. It looks yeah. like Tim, are you here? He's, I just uh, saw him. 
Looks like he his audio is not on. I can see a video icon. Okay, I see him. I'm not sure if you can hear us. Something oh, is there surfing. we go. Can you guys hear me? Yes. I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. Tim, you can you can join down. You can like join the the. There he is. Hey, there he is. Hey, 